Anybody hungry? We get to have this feast again of the Word of God and share this together. So let me uh, invite you, open your Bibles to Psalm 19. Psalm 19, we're going to read verses 7 through 11. Psalm 19. I'm reading from the New Living Translation today, so if you're following along in the Pew Bibles, it'll sound a little different than what you've got in front of you, but uh, sometimes the New Living Translation just brings things alive in a way that is uh, really special. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. Listen to God's Word. The instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for living. Reverence for the Lord is pure, lasting forever. The laws of the Lord are true. Each one is fair. They are more desirable than gold, even the finest gold. They are sweeter than honey, even honey dripping from the comb. They are a warning to your servant, a great reward for those who obey them. And then turning also over to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5 verses 17 through 20. This is Jesus speaking here right near the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, this big um, long section of teaching about what the kingdom of God is really like and what it's all about. So uh, Matthew 5 starting with verse 17. Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But, I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Friends, this is God's word for us today. God, thank you that you're right here with us. We really need your help, Lord. We need your help to, to hear your voice and to let your word deep down into us. So, Holy Spirit, come and be our teacher. In Jesus' name, amen. Do any of you have a schedule for cleaning out your refrigerator so that you know that nothing is rotting at the back? I don't have one of those schedules. You know, every once in a while, if you're like me, you open the refrigerator and you get way to the back and you're like, huh, 
what is this? <laughs> I wonder how old this is. Sometimes it has an expiration date on it, and you're like, oh, yeah, get rid of that. But sometimes it doesn't have an expiration date, and you're like, huh, anyone want to try it? <laughs> There's somebody in every family, isn't there, who's willing to try it, or who will taste whatever it is and be like, I don't know, it tastes okay to me. <laughs> I'm <laughs> not going to say who that is in our family. <laughs> it's sort of a gamble, isn't it? You know, or you could just do the old if in doubt, throw it out thing. Or you could take that, that, that sniff, you know, it smells okay. I think it must be all right. <laughs> Eat this book we're talking about eating the Word of God, consuming God's Word, the Bible. What's our method for deciding what the expiration date is on parts of the Bible? How do we figure out these parts that have been lurking maybe near the back that we haven't reached out and, and interacted with for a long time? It's not so handy as to have a, a date stamped on the bottom. Do we just sort of sniff it? and then toss it if it, it doesn't appeal to us anymore. I mean, there are parts of the Bible that, that are, are difficult. They seem out of date. Listen to Leviticus 13.45. Those who suffer from a serious skin disease must tear their clothing and leave their hair uncombed. They must cover their mouth and call out, unclean, unclean. As long as the serious disease lasts, they will be ceremonially unclean. They must live in isolation in their place outside the camp. Hmm. Shingles, anyone? <laughs> Chicken box? <laughs> we don't do this anymore, do we? Should we? How about Leviticus 14.10? This is also for people with skin diseases. On the eighth day... Each person being purified, when their disease is done, must bring two male lambs and one, uh, a one-year-old female lamb, all with no defects, along with a grain offering of six quarts of choice flour moistened with olive oil and a cup of olive oil. Then the officiating priest will present that person for purification along with the offerings before the Lord at the entrance of the tabernacle. The priest will take one of the male lambs and the olive oil and present them as a guilt offering, lifting them up as a special offering before the Lord. He will then slaughter the male lamb in the sacred area where sins and burnt offerings are slaughtered. As with the sin offering, the guilt offering belongs to the priest. The priest will then take some of the blood of the guilt offering and apply it to the lobe of the right ear, the thumb of the right hand, and the big toe of the right foot of the person being purified. What? <laughs> they did not teach us to do that in seminary, I'm just telling you. What do we make of things like this? Well, the easy answer is, well, those are Old Testament passages. And we're New Testament people, right? So we just can set those aside. But we don't set aside the whole Old Testament, do we? I mean, the, the, the Ten Commandments are in the Old Testament. We don't just say, oh, that thing about not murdering, we don't do that anymore. Don't commit adultery, pfft. 
That doesn't apply to us. No, there's a lot in the Old Testament that we do say really applies to us. And, you know, we have the same problem with some parts of the New Testament as well. 1 Corinthians 11 says that every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. How do we decide what's past the expiration date? Do we just sniff it and say, eh, that smells funny to us now. Let's get rid of that. But then we're faced with things like Psalm 19 that say God's words are reliable. They're, they're words that give us life. The instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. We know that the Bible says that all Scripture is God-breathed. So that sounds like it means it has no expiration date at all. But that doesn't make it clear how to apply it to our lives today, does it? We're still left with these big questions. Sometimes we hear comments from both Christians and non-Christians alike, things like, well, that's just your interpretation. Or the Bible can be made to say whatever it wants. Have you ever heard that? Or you can't really understand the Bible. It's full of contradictions. Or maybe this. Why do you ignore some parts of the Bible but not others? Maybe those are your questions as well. Those are good questions. Well, here's what I'd like to propose today. That there is a clear, consistent method available to us to interpret the Bible so that we're not just left with, well, if it seems out of date, I guess we should just throw it out. And the parts we like, we should keep. There's a clear, consistent method of biblical interpretation that has integrity and that is available to us to answer those really hard questions. We're going to focus today especially on the Old Testament because those um, laws of the Old Testament are really the most striking example. So we're going to walk today through a, a simple, clear method that we can all use to help us navigate what, how, how we hold up all of God's Word as the Word of God and apply it to our lives in ways that are appropriate for us as New Testament people. So, Jesus gives us some help here. He says we don't just throw out the Old Testament. Here in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. In other words, basically the, 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 what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures. No, he says, I came to accomplish their purpose. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law. Abolish is it's a very strong word. In the other places it's used in Matthew, it's used of demolishing the temple. So Jesus is saying here, I didn't come to demolish the Old Testament, to turn it into rubble, to just sweep it away as something finished. But he says, I came to fulfill the, the Old Testament. The opposite of abolish isn't observe, it's 
fulfill. He uses this word accomplish or fulfill. This word fulfill occurs numerous times in Matthew, and it normally means to bring something to its intended meaning. Fulfill doesn't mean to like bring to an end, but to fill out, to expand, or to complete. If you think about an empty balloon that has no air in it, and then think about filling that with air, that is fulfilling that balloon. It's expanding it to make it what it was intended to be. So that's what Jesus is saying here about the Old Testament. He's saying that he fills it up or fills it full with meaning. Jesus' life and his death and his teaching completely fulfilled the Old Testament law. And so, therefore, every aspect of the Old Testament has to be seen and, and interpreted and lived out in the light of Christ. Jesus says here, I tell you the truth, this is verse 18, until heaven and earth disappear, even the smallest detail, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So he's saying, I'm not wiping it away. I'm, I'm filling it out. I'm making it what it was intended to be. J. Daniel Hayes puts it this way. Jesus was not advocating the continuation of the traditional Jewish approach to adherence of the law. Nor was he advocating that the law be dismissed altogether. He was proclaiming that the meaning of the law must be interpreted in light of his coming and in light of the profound changes introduced in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. So, what method can we use, can we use to see if this is past the expiration date? This clear, consistent method that takes into account the the, the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Covenant and the New Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures and the Christian Scriptures. So there's five questions we can ask, and these are, there's blanks for these on the uh, insert in your bulletin. So if, uh, if you like to take notes, this would be a good time to pull that out and find a pencil and, and just follow along as we uh, work our way through these five questions. The first question we ask when we come to a scripture that we're not sure how it would apply to us today, we ask, what did it mean? What did it mean? In other words, what did it mean to the original people who received it? What did it mean to the original audience? Who was the original audience? Was it one person? Was it a group of people? Was it... The, the whole nation of Israel, all of God's people, those things make a difference depending on who it was said to originally. What was happening to the people that, uh, that it was originally uh, said to? Um, who were these people? What, what was going on in their lives? What did it mean to them? Were they Israelites in the desert? Was it after they moved to the promised land? Was it when they were in exile in Babylon? This kind of things are also helpful to know. For example, Deuteronomy 24 says, If a poor man gives his cloak in pledge, it must be returned at night so 
that he won't be cold. And a widow's cloak must not be taken in pledge at all. So if we read that and we think, okay, what did that mean to the people who first received that command? We need to understand in order to answer that question, well, what's a cloak? It says, if a poor man gives his cloak in pledge, what, what was a cloak exactly? Was it just like what they wore for their whole outfit? Was he giving away all his clothes? Or was is it their outer, like their coat? Um, and we need to know also, what does it mean uh, to give something in pledge? Those were like security deposits. So we need to know how security deposits worked back then to know what this meant to the original people. A Bible dictionary can be a huge help here, or a good study Bible. So that's the first question we ask. What did it mean? We get to do a little investigating there. Here's the second question. What's different now? When we find scripture that we're wondering how this applies to us, first we ask, what did it mean? And then what's different now? What are the differences between you and the people that it was originally written to you? For example, the Old Testament laws um, were written to define the covenant of what it meant to be God's people. God said, you will be my people and I will be your God. And these laws define how we will live our life together. Well, the New Testament teaches us that that covenant is no longer in place for us because Jesus brought a new covenant. Hebrews 8.13 says, By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one, the old Moses covenant, obsolete. Romans 6 tells us we're no longer living under that law in the Old Testament, but under grace. So what's different now? Well, Jesus has come to fulfill the law. It's not abolished, but it doesn't apply in the same way. So we ask, what's different between those people that it was originally given to and us? Other differences might be, well, we live in a democracy, not under a king chosen by God. So that gives us a different context for how we live. Or um, we don't have the threat of idol worship all around us, tempting us away from God. A lot of these laws were written when worship of Baal and worship of Asherah was this huge temptation to people. I don't know about you, but I don't know too many people who are hugely tempted to worship Baal anymore. We have other temptations, certainly, but not those two. So that's different. We don't use cloaks as security deposits anymore, do we? We have cash. We have, I don't know, credit, securities, things like that. So that's a difference from when they first received it to us. So that's the second question. What's different now? Here's the third question, and this is where it starts getting really interesting. What truth does this teach? What truth does it teach? What universal truth is given to us here? What timeless wisdom can we get out of this? You know, if we never ask this question, 
We will never see the Old Testament laws as anything besides a long, annoying, nitpicky, somewhat illogical list of do's and don'ts. But if we can get at what's behind them, what was God trying to communicate in the big picture through these, then it starts getting really interesting. We can see how God was trying to point to his holiness and trying to create a holy people, a set-apart people, and how God was preparing his people for the fullness of time, as the Bible says, when Jesus would come, that the law does all of that. So we ask, what, what truth does this teach? Sometimes that takes a little digging. If we, we think about that, I, that idea of using cloaks for security deposits, and we ask, what truth is, was God trying to get across here? I think we could say that God communicates through this that God really cares about the poor, even more than he cares about the economic security of those who are lending to the poor. He cares about the poor and widows especially, who were the most vulnerable in that society. So that would be the timeless truth that you could get out of this law that seems kind of inapplicable to our lives now. So that's the, the third question. What truth does it teach? And then the fourth one is this. What, what does the New Testament say? Sometimes the New Testament says the same thing. Um, does it say the same thing any place? And we can see in this case that, yes, several times in the New Testament, it's lifted up that we should be caring for the poor, especially widows and orphans. We see this as something that God values. Sometimes the New Testament teaches the opposite. It shows how things have completely changed. According to the New Testament, God no longer dwells among believers by, by residing in a temple or a tabernacle, but God lives in us by his Holy Spirit. His presence, however, still calls for holiness, for being set apart. And uh, the New Testament redefines what it means to be clean or unclean and, and replaces this whole sacrificial system with Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. So we ask, what, what does the New Testament say? And finally this. This is the fifth one. How can we live this truth today? This is where we look at what we've walked our way up to and said, okay, so what? So what? So if this is the truth that God's trying to communicate here, what do we do with it? How do we live it? And maybe... More interesting, how do I live it? It's easier to say how, how we should do something, but then a little harder often to apply it to our personal lives. So how do we live this truth today? If we go back to that taking cloaks as security deposits example, we would say, okay, we've learned that God values the poor, and he values widows and orphans, even over economic security, of those who have enough to lend. So how do we live that? Well, we might think about how to live that out in terms of the policies we support regarding refugees or payday loans or um, even uh, 
uh, all kinds of, uh, of social policies. And then if we say, well, okay, how can I live this out? Then it gets more personal. And we have to ask ourselves questions about how will I use my money this week? How will I use my time this week to take care of poor and, and widowed and orphaned people? Paul gives us a quick example of how he applies this method um, in the New Testament. There's this command in Deuteronomy 25 that says, You must not muzzle an ox to keep it from eating as it treads out the grain. Well, you might read that and think, well, I'm fresh out of oxen. <laughs> Don't have any grain fields, so I guess I'm off the hook on this one, right? Nothing to do with me here. But Paul helps us think this through. He, finds, he uses this quote in defending his right to receive material support from the Corinthians. Apparently there was some dispute about that. He's saying a worker deserves his wages. You shouldn't ask someone to work for free just because it's for a good cause and let them go hungry. And Paul cites this command whose principle or universal truth can be applied to situations other than the original context of oxen and, and grain fields. So there is a, a clear, consistent way to interpret the Bible. It's not all just the sniff test. If it doesn't smell good, throw it out. And even if you don't remember all the details, all these five steps, I hope that you'll at least remember that people have thought this through. There really are some good, solid answers to those hard questions about why we seemingly obey some parts and not other parts of the Bible. There are resources on our website, our church website, if you want to dig deeper into this. If you go to the uh, top right where it says media and click on that, and then you'll see a drop-down that says resources, we have resources for you to help with uh, understanding the Bible better, with digging into certain topics. And just... Uh, and, and, and we have the whole um, Scripture Academy um, starting couple weeks ago, but you can still join in if you are interested in that. We would love to have you do that. But let me warn you, this eating, this book, it's still not easy. It's still not easy. There's still no quick and easy formula for understanding the Bible and putting it into practice and then you're done. You're home free. There's something about the human condition that we always would just, we'd love to have a formula or a checklist or some magic words that we could say so we just know we were okay with God, right? We could just do these things and not have to think about it. But God consistently refuses to give us that. He keeps drawing us back to say, what's in your heart? What's in your heart? What's in your heart? He doesn't make the Old Testament law easier for us. He makes it deeper. He makes it broader. Something that goes all the way 
to the heart. It's not that we throw out the Old Testament or the Ten Commandments. It's that we seek to understand and live by the spiritual law that lies beneath them. We might call that the law of Christ. Robin Brace puts it this way. Through the law of Christ, we see that adultery is not the real problem, but rather the lust which leads, to the, which leads to it is the problem. We see that murder is not the real problem, but the hatred which leads to it. We see also that keeping the Sabbath is not about mechanically refraining from doing work one day a week, but about entering the rest of Christ now. And then finally entering God's rest of eternal life at the end of our lives. Jesus put it this way, but I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What does he mean by that? I mean, the Pharisees were experts at keeping the law. And Jesus seems to understand here that none of us, not one of us can do that. But he says there's no easy formula. If someone were to give you the formula for the perfect marriage, like say I love you to your spouse at least five times a day, buy your spouse flowers once a week, say these things, do these things. If you could just take that little pamphlet and put it into practice, would it guarantee a happy marriage? Of course not. We all know better than that. It needs to have our heart into it. And it's the same way with living out what the, the Bible teaches. It's all about relationship, about a relationship with God. The most perfect obedience to the law can't save us. Nothing short of a radical transformation. What Jesus called a new birth can save us. You know, eating is not an end in itself. We don't eat just so that we can put food in our mouths and swallow it and get it down to our stomachs, right? We eat because it gives us energy to live. It keeps us alive. It's the same with eating this. We don't, we don't read and understand and study the Bible as an end in itself. If all we do is take it in and, and don't let it help us really live, then we haven't let it accomplish its purpose. It doesn't do us any good. So take it in. Take it in. Let it live inside you. Jesus offers us new life every day. If you have never taken him up on that invitation, why not today? And if you have not taken him up on that invitation today and again given him everything that you are and everything that you have, what are you waiting for? He is where real life is found. Let's give ourselves to him. God, you have been so gracious to reveal yourself in this book. 
But we don't want to stop with the book. We want it to lead us to you. Oh God, change our lives. Change our hearts. Give us the grace to give ourselves to you 100%. What we really, really want, Lord, is a an ever closer relationship with you, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And it's in your powerful name that we ask these things. Amen.